Round two. If you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter two. Exodus chapter two, we'll be looking at verses one through 25, the whole chapter there. Exodus, the way out. God knows, cares, and rules is the title of this weekend's message. Grab your sermon notes out also. You can follow along. You guys doing well? Excellent. Good to have you with us. So here, let me give you a summary statement of what the book of Exodus is all about. He draws us out. He draws us out of our enslavements, our Egypt, so that he can draw us into intimacy, all in intimacy with him. He draws us into our promised land, draws us out of Egypt into intimacy and relationship with him, our promised land. That's the summary of what the book is all about. The first 18 chapters deals with us being drawn out of Egypt, out of our enslavements. The second part of the book, 19 through 40, has to do with our being drawn into intimacy with God. We need to do a quick summary here of the first chapter because we're heading into the second chapter here this morning, this weekend. And so Exodus picks up the storyline from the previous book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis ends with Abraham's grandson, Jacob, leading a large group of people down to Egypt. Do you guys remember how many people he led into Egypt? 70. 70. You guys got it. Good. So he, uh, a large group of 70 down to Egypt, 400 years pass, and they have been very fruitful and have grown exceedingly strong. Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. It's, it's It's amazing. In fact, when they finally exit Egypt, how many will they have? Two million. So they go from 70 to two million. It's astounding. It's absolutely amazing. And so they're very fruitful, have grown exceedingly strong. Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. The Pharaoh and the Egyptians are feeling threatened, so they begin to oppress God's people exceedingly, but unsuccessfully. And so we, we talked about it last weekend. The title of last weekend's message was, uh, was Blessing in Bitter Times. Blessing in Bitter Times is what we talked about. So if you didn't get a chance to listen to that message, I would encourage you to, to go online and listen to that. That was chapter one. And so why, why were they able to experience, regardless of the oppression by the uh, Egyptians and Pharaoh, How did they continue to be blessed? How did they continue to flourish in spite of that bitterness? Well, it just makes sense. If God is for you, who can be against you? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And so that's what we saw last week. But we we finished last weekend's message by saying this. If I'm going to experience blessing in bitter times, I must believe God knows, cares, and rules the circumstances of my life for my good and his glory. And so they were able to thrive. They were able to to grow because the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad. Exodus chapter one, verse 12, blessing in bitter times because they believed that God knows, cares, and rules. In fact, those are the three attributes that you need to know about God if you're gonna ever get through difficult times in your life, that he knows, he cares, He rules. So what do we mean by that, that he knows, he cares, he rules? Well, this is what we mean. We mean that that God is is infinite in his knowledge and wisdom about us. He knows every detail of our life. He knows the hairs of our head. He knows the number of hairs on our head. I know it's an easy count for some of us, but, but he knows that. He knows that. He knows the details of our life. He knows what is in our best interest. 
But he's also perfect in, in his love. He knows he cares. What does it mean that he cares? He loves us. No one has ever loved you like Jesus. No one has ever loved you like the Father, like God loves you. And so he knows, knows the details of your life. He cares. He really, really does care about you. And then he, he rules. What does that mean? He's sovereign. There's not one maverick molecule on this planet Earth. He's unlimited in his power. So those are the three attributes. So you can see, if you, if you miss any one of those, you're not gonna be able to trust God in the midst of difficulties. So let's just say, you know that he knows the details of your life, he knows you intimately, but he doesn't really care. If you doubt that he cares, then you're gonna struggle through difficulties. Or let's say that you know that he knows, he knows, he's, he knows the intimate details of your life, he knows what's best for you, and yet he, he also cares, but he doesn't rule, he's not sovereign, well, he can't pull it off, he can't, he can't, you can't trust him. If he's not truly sovereign, if he's not truly unlimited in his, uh, in his power and his control. And so, so you, know, you need to know all three of those, that he knows, he cares, he rules. So this is how it works out in our lives. So when I'm going through difficulty, I've got to believe that God in his infinite wisdom and knowledge, he, he knows what is best for me. Do, do you think, uh, is God smarter than you? Okay, you guys were a little bit slow kind of on that. I like, oh yeah. I think so. I think he's smarter than me. No, no, no. No, listen to me. I know him, and he's a lot smarter than you. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Believe me. Oh. I, I didn't mean to laugh, but, uh, but it's true, okay? It's really, really true. Uh, he's like so, so, much, so much smarter than you that uh, it's almost silly, but, uh, but, he, but, but he, because he's so much smarter than you, he knows what's in your best interest. That's part of his infinite wisdom and knowledge. So, so in his infinite wisdom and knowledge, he, he knows what is best for you. In his care for you, in his love for you, his perfect love, he wants what is best for you. Believe me. You see it throughout scripture. He wants what is best for you. Oh, and, and in, his, in, in the fact that he rules, that he's sovereign, unlimited power, listen, he's gonna get it done. He's, he's gonna get it done. So when we go through difficulties, we've gotta to learn to trust him and trust that he's, he knows, he cares, he rules. In fact, take a look at your notes there. My concept of God not only determines the quality of my relationship with him and what I convey to others about him, but also my ability to get through adversity. So, so do you see how critical it is that you, you know God intimately and you know those three attributes about God? and you live in the reality of those three attributes because it determines the quality of your relationship with God, particularly when you're going through difficulties, but also what you convey to others when they're going through difficulties, but also, I mean, it's just, it's just how you live out your life. Remember what I said, it's an A.W. Tozer quote that our, our worship of God rises or falls with our concept of God. If your worship of God is kind of flesh because you got just a small view of God. Believe me, you get to know the God of the Bible, oh my goodness, your worship of him is gonna soar, it's gonna go through the roof. You're gonna to wanna to know him. You're gonna to wanna to experience him more and more. And so that's what, why we study the Bible. That's why we spend time in, in worship, in song, and in scripture week in and week out. Man, we want to know him. We, we are desperate to know him. And, uh, and so that's where we're headed with our study. Let me pray. I'd like to pray Psalm 9, 9 and 10. You'll see why in a moment because they're powerful verses in really knowing God intimately and experiencing him. And, and that's my prayer for us as we look at this study today. And then we'll look at our text. We'll walk through our text and then we'll unpack these notes because we're talking about the reality of the fact that God knows, cares, and rules. And so no matter where you might be this morning, 
no matter where you might be, maybe you're going through some hard times, you need to know this morning, deep in your heart, not just as a, as a concept, but as a reality, that he knows, he cares, he rules. You can trust him. Let's pray. So God, we love your presence. We love spending time with you. We love growing in our relationship with you. And so Father, we know that it tells us in Psalm 9, 9 and 10 that you are a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And I know that there are those that are here this weekend that, are, that need to know that. They need to find you as a refuge and a stronghold. And, and, and God, it also tells us in, in those verses that those who know your name, those who know your name, know your character, that you are infinite in wisdom, perfect in love, unlimited in power. Those who know your name will trust in you. Our trust grows in direct proportion to our intimacy with you, our knowing you. They will trust in you because you have never forsaken those who seek you. And so, Father, as we seek you through the study of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives, may we get to know you more and more, increasing our trust in you, as our refuge and stronghold in times of trouble, and may it fill us with a peace that goes beyond our understanding. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful and glorious name, and everyone said, amen. Take a look at this. Uh, you also notice on your notes, anytime you study a particular text, you're asking the big question of, uh, like, uh, what does this mean? What's the big idea? I'm going to give you the big, idea before we, the big idea before we read the text here, the whole chapter. But the first 22 verses gives us the biblical truth illustrated in the life of Moses. And then the last three verses gives us the biblical truth stated. So the biblical truth stated in the last three verses is God knows, cares, and rules. He kind of says that's what it's all about. And then he gives us this illustration of the fact that God knows, cares, and rules by showing us the life of Moses. Moses' birth and childhood, verses 1 through 10. And then Moses' adulthood and preparation for ministry in verses 11 through 22. So that's where we're headed. Let me give you the context. Keep in mind, we ended last weekend in that chapter, chapter 1, that Pharaoh had commanded that the newborn Hebrew boys be thrown into the Nile River. What? Genocide, yes. Horrible circumstances. So that's what they're up against. And, and keep in mind, the more they are oppressed, the more they continue to flourish because God is for them and not against them. We gotta always keep that in mind. God knows, cares, and rules. And so let's begin reading chapter two, verse one. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months, and when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. Stop there just for a minute, because the word basket is a fascinating word here. In the Greek... It's, it's really the same word that is in Hebrew. Old Testament is written in Hebrew. So basket in this is, is the same word in Hebrew used to describe Noah's ark. So she puts them in this basket. This, the word that's used for that basket is the same word that's used for Noah's ark found in Genesis uh, chapters 6 through 9. It's the only other place in the Bible where that word is used. So just as God's hand of grace was on Noah, a deliverer bringing salvation, so it was with the deliverer Moses. There's much more to that. I think it's very profound. The writer here would put that in there 
Because as they put Moses in there, it's almost like they're entrusting God with Moses, this little ark, this idea of this ark. Verse four, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done. So this is Moses' sister. So it's almost as if mom and dad put Moses in this basket, ark, like little basket, is sending him down the river, the Nile River, and they can't bear to watch. They walk away, and his sister, who's probably about seven to maybe uh, 10 or 11 years old, is, is kind of watching to see what's going to happen to her little baby brother. It's kind of like, oh, I'm going to watch. I'm going to stay close to see what happens. And that's the idea. So his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young while her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it, and when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying, and she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister, okay, this is Moses' sister, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, so she's close enough to be able to interact and obviously speak Egyptian, and interact with her and said, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? <laughs> She's a sharp little girl here, huh? Because look what happens in, in verse eight. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, which is her mother. <laughs> and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages so the woman took the child and nursed him. Do you see what just happened? Is that incredible or what? I love this story. This is amazing. I mean, it's the beautiful picture of God's providential hand on our lives. So, so check this out. So here, so you got the Pharaoh. He's trying to, trying to oppress the people of God. He's doing everything he can. It's almost like God's like, do, do whatever you want to do, because how about I do this, Pharaoh? How about I, I raise up a deliverer right under your own nose at your expense? <laughs> Isn't that great? It's like, well, you think you can come against God? You think you can come against my people? It's not going to work. And so... It, it, it's just so fascinating, this story here. It really helps us to understand that God does know, he cares, he rules. Now, you may think things could never be worse, but remember God's mysterious providence. Things couldn't be worse for these folks. The king of Egypt commanded that if you have a, a newborn baby boy, you're gonna have to throw him into the Nile River. What? So they're thinking, oh my goodness, we can't have any guys, we can't have any boys, we're gonna have to have girls, and then they have, this, they have this boy, and it's like, oh no, what are we gonna do? Pretty scary stuff. God works out his perfect will in amazing ways because God knows, cares, and rules. Verse 10, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, and this is literally what his name means, because she said, I drew him out of the water. So that's why the book of Exodus is about God drawing us out. Just as Moses was drawn out of the water, God draws us out of sin, out of slavery, and draws us into intimacy with him. It's, that's that big picture here. Now, 
Now to the second part of the biblical truth illustrated in the life of Moses, Moses' adulthood and preparation for ministry. Verse 11, and then one day when Moses had grown up, now, how old do you think he is here? Well, we know based on Scripture, the best commentary for Scripture is always Scripture. Based on, in Acts 7, 22 and 23, this is Stephen's speech. Just before he's martyred, he says that Moses was 40 years old, mighty in words and deeds. So we know that based on Stephen's commentary on that because Stephen is giving a long history lesson and gives us some insight into Moses' life. So one day when Moses had grown up, he's 40 years old, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. By the way, anytime that you kind of have to look this way and that way, you're probably not going to be doing anything any good, okay? Would you guys agree with that? I mean, you know, when you kind of like, hmm, anybody looking here? What am I going to do here? I'm going to, what? You better be thinking about what you're doing. Now, he looked this way and that way, but where did he forget to look? Forgot to look up. He forgot to look up. And so when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, "Uh, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So uh, God hadn't dispatched him yet, hadn't commissioned him yet. So he's kind of taking these matters into his own hands And then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. And in Midian is the wilderness, is known as the wilderness. Now, uh, what we see here, this is the sin of taking matters into our own hands. We're all guilty of that. And it's trying to be God rather than to trust God. I think he had a good heart. It was a bit misguided. And what we'll talk about here in a minute here is that he just, he lacked some character. He had some giftings. He was very gifted, a lot of charisma, but he lacked some character here and he really needed to to seek God's help in this. Verse uh, 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to... uh, troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Do you notice a consistent pattern in Moses' life? He's kind of really wants to stand against injustice and there's some, some great deep passion in his life. I think it's placed in there by God. Verse 18, when they came home to their father, Ruel, which by the way, you need to know this is Jethro. Jethro, uh, this is, this is uh, Moses, this will be Moses' father-in-law. You, we'll talk about him later on in the story. Uh, there's a lot of different names and nicknames for these different guys, and so sometimes you can lose the characters in the story and the plot line. And so when they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today. And they said, well, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us. Notice that. Even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, then, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Stop there just for a minute because this is interesting. So, so when uh, in this culture, men didn't water the flock, That was a woman's job in that culture. Just as in our culture, it's a woman's job to... 
Okay, never mind. Uh, <laughs> we'll talk about that some other time. <laughs> but, but anyway, in this culture, it was a woman's job to water the flock. And then that's why the father says, what? He watered your flock? Ladies, you better go get that man. He's a keeper. Forget eHarmony.com and Match.com. You got one right there. That's, okay, that's, that was my kind of my understanding and translation of that because he's like, whoa, bring him home. Bring him home with you. And so then Moses was content, this is verse 21, and Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah and she gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And so because Moses takes matters into his, his own hands, God allows him to face the consequences of his actions and he is driven into the wilderness. The wilderness is where people meet God. The wilderness is uh, where God does his best work on us. And so we've got, uh, that's the biblical truth illustrated in the life of Moses. And now we have the biblical truth stated, God knows, cares, and rules, verse 23. And during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. So it came up to God. God hears them. But I want you to notice the verbs in the next two verses showing us God's motive for acting on their behalf and also his motives for acting on our behalf. Notice this, verse 24, and God heard, God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. This is the word of the Lord to us. Okay. So because God knows, cares, and rules, how does this apply to my life? How can we live this out in our own lives? But let me, first of all, just let's go back. Keep your Bibles open. Go back to verses 24 and 25 because I need to point a couple things out to you. When it says there in verse 24, God remembered his covenant. And by the way, that statement, the title of this weekend's message is just a summary statement of verses 24 and 25. God knows, cares, and rules. And so this idea that God remembered his covenant, it's not like God forgets anything because he's omniscient. He doesn't forget anything. So what's the language here? Well, he remembers means, it means that he acts on it. So when the Bible says God remembers, he's acting on it. When he forgets, he's not acting on it because he never forgets anything. So for instance, in Jeremiah 31, 34, God says, I will remember their sin no more. It just means he's not acting on their sin. So when he forgets our sin, it's not that he forgets our sin. He doesn't act on our sin. So what it's saying here is that God is acting on his covenant. Now we need to define the word covenant. This is a fabulous word. It's a beautiful word. Uh, it's the first time that we see this word in Exodus. It's used 25 times in Genesis. And I believe that the best definition for this word, word is found in the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. <laughs> it's a great definition. Listen to what the definition for covenant is. So this is what he's acting on. This is what God is doing in their lives, what he does in our lives as a result of our covenant relationship with him by grace through faith in Christ. And this is what she says. Covenant is a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Yeah. I love that. That's good stuff. 
He's committed to us. He loves us. No one has ever loved us like him. Okay, so because God cares, because God knows, cares, and rules, how does that apply to my life? Here's the first point on your notes. My place in history is no accident. My place in history is no accident. So just as God raised up Moses as a deliverer for Israel for that specific time and place in history, probably the worst time to have a, a little boy born into your home, they had to have been thinking, oh my goodness, this is crazy. This, is, this must be an accident. God, you know, we're, you, know, you know the oppression we're under with this Egyptian king. He wants us to throw this child into the Nile River. So they're thinking, oh my goodness, this, this, could be, this couldn't be worse timing, and yet, just as God raised up Moses as a deliverer for Israel for that specific time and place in history, verses one and two, God has placed you at this exact time and place in history for his purposes. Acts 17, 24 through 31. So history, history, listen to me, history is his story. It's not about your story. It's his story. You are here on this planet Earth not for your glory, for, for people to make much of you, but for people to make much of the God that's in you, for your life to point to God and for his glory. Not for your glory, but for God's glory. You are not an accident. You are not an accident. There are accidental parents, but there are no accidental children. There are illegitimate parents, but there are no illegitimate children. Your parents may not have planned you, but God did. And in fact, if God didn't want you to exist, you wouldn't be alive right now. And so that first point, my place in history is no accident because God knows, cares, and rules. You're here by divine design for such a time as this, and God wants you to live in such a way that you put on display his beauty and his glory. Oh my goodness, that's a wonderful way to live. That's, that's what you were created to do. And here's the next point. My protection and provision is no coincidence. That's why I love this story, verses uh, three through 10. What are the chances of Pharaoh who commanded that every son born to the Hebrews be cast into the Nile, have a daughter who happens to be bathing in the Nile at the very time that Moses is floating in the Nile and she has pity on him and then unknowingly retrieves his own mom and pays her to nurse Moses so that she can later raise him in the palace with the best kind of education possible. What are the chances of that happening? Not very many. I mean, this is showing us the providential hand of God. God raised up a deliverer right under Pharaoh's nose at Pharaoh's expense. Now, we need to deal with a tough topic here. As we, as we analyze this idea of this idea between human responsibility, divine sovereignty. Human responsibility, divine sovereignty are like two pedals on a bicycle. I believe the Bible teaches both of these. Human responsibility, you need to be responsible, but there's also this divine sovereignty, God is in control. How do you bring those together? Listen, it's a mystery. The Bible is filled with mysteries. We have a lot of mysteries in our basic essential beliefs, such as the hypostatic union of Jesus. What is that? Uh, some of you don't even know what I just said, do you? But the but, but hypostatic union of Jesus is that he's 100% God, 100% man. How does that work out? That doesn't make sense. How about the Trinity? Yeah, how about the fact that God, God knows all of us and we can have an intimate relationship with God and he hears all of us even at the same time and can answer us and we can interact with him, we can have a relationship with him. It doesn't make sense. Well, God's infinite, God's eternal, God's, God's spirit, God's, yeah, those are, those are all things that should blow our minds and they're mysteries. Mysteries are not meant to be conquered but to be celebrated. 
And so this idea of human responsibility and divine sovereignty is a mystery. Let me read to you something here. Hebrews 11.23 gives us a little bit more insight into this story. And it says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. So it's saying his parents had faith. And they hid him by faith. Now, why did they do that? Because they saw that the child was beautiful and that they were not afraid of the king's edict. So what is that? That's human responsibility. They realized, wait a minute, we're not going to listen to this king. We're going to take responsibility here. We're going to protect our son. And then when they held on to him for as long as they could, after about three or so months, then they realized, oh my goodness, we can't hang on to him anymore. So we're going to put him in this ark, this this ark-like little basket. We're going to send him down the Nile River. Oh my goodness, From that point on, I think it's almost like, okay, God, he's in your hands, divine sovereignty. But God's divine sovereignty was working throughout all of that anyway. So you almost, in this story, you see this beautiful, uh, this beautiful uh, interaction between human responsibility, divine sovereignty, and in fact, the Bible teaches that historical events are determined by God through our choices. So the Bible teaches that Historical events are determined by God, divine sovereignty through our choices, human responsibility. I know, I know it's hard, but, but, but this is why, listen to me, you've got to have a good healthy theology both of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. If you don't have, you're going to tend to swing to one extreme or, uh, or the other when it comes to difficulties. Let me show you. Let me kind of walk you through that of what that might look like. For instance, human responsibility, if you have a healthy human responsibility um, theology, but minus divine sovereignty, minus divine sovereignty, guess what that's going to lead to in your life? Paranoia. Yeah, that's going to lead to fear, phobias, OCDs, workaholism, perfectionism. You're a control freak. You're trying to control things because I've got to make things happen. And oh, it's not going to happen. Oh, what am I going to do? Ah, You don't believe in God's divine sovereignty. You're trying to take matters into your own hands, as we saw in, in the life of Moses. You need to work hard, but you need to rest in him. But if you're just driven, work, 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 I gotta keep going, 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 it's because you don't, divi- you don't believe in divine sovereignty. You understand human responsibility. I gotta be responsible, but you're over-responsible. You need to rest. You need to trust in him. See, that's, that's that one extreme. Here's the other extreme. Let's just say that you, div- you believe in divine sovereignty, but minus human responsibility, that's passivity. That's fatalism. That's cynicism. It's like, well, whatever. God's in control. He's going to do whatever he wants to do. So what, what's the use? I don't need to do anything. What are you, crazy? Yeah, you do. You're going to be held accountable for your actions. And you need to be a responsible person, but not too responsible. Don't push it out to an extreme. So you're going to either have this, uh, you're going to go to one of these two extremes. You're going to be paranoid fear, driven, or it's going to be passive. Whatever will be, will be. Both of those are extreme. Those are wrong. So, so human responsibility plus divine sovereignty, healthy theology in both of those areas, two pedals on a bike pushing you down the road will lead to hard work but rest in God. You're going to work hard but leave the results in God's hands. Man, that's just good psychology. That's healthy. That's really healthy for us. Great example. Write this on your notes. Acts 27. It's the storm 
that uh, Paul talks about there, Acts 27, the big, big storm. And what's fascinating about this is that Paul, in this storm, in the storm, he's alert but calm. <laughs> he's alert, human responsibility, but he's calm because of divine sovereignty in the midst of the storm because he knows Romans 8.28. Well, he knows that because he wrote it, Okay. Romans 8, 28, for we know that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. So he's alert, but calm. He worked hard, but he rested in God. So let me ask you a tough question here. We need to talk about the art of letting go. Do you think it was hard for Moses' mom to let him go down the Nile in a basket? You, you, I mean, when you think about that, if you really reflect on that a little bit, no mom or dad would, I mean, in their right mind, they're like, oh my goodness, but they, they did the best they could to protect him, human responsibility, but at some point, they, they realized for the protection of the rest of their family, we gotta send him down the river and just trust God with him. See, that's the art of letting go. Do you think it was hard for Moses' mom to let him go back to Pharaoh's daughter after nursing him for two to three years? I mean, talk about jerk your emotions around. So she sends him down the river initially, and then the daughter comes back, hey, mom, you're not going to believe this. Mom, they're going to hire you to nurse Moses. What? Yeah. So she nurses him for two to three years, and then she's got to give him back. I mean, if it was me, and we were in the household, I would be like, so Pharaoh's uh, daughter shows up, says, okay, you you all finished? No, 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 we're still nursing. Wait a minute, he's like 10 years old. So we're like hanging on to him. No, he's my boy. We're going to take care of him. We're still taking care of him. We're still nursing him. So, that sounds weird, I know. But that's probably a controlling mom. I mean, that's, I mean that would have been extremely hard, extremely hard to, to, to give, give him back. But she's probably thinking, oh, my goodness, at least he's alive. And I don't understand all of this, but, oh, God, protect him. And that's the, that's the art of letting go. So when we talk about letting go, letting go is not an attitude. By the way, there are things that we need to let go of. I'm going to go through a list here. I've got a list for all of us here. You could probably add to this list, but it's, it's pretty extensive as I looked at my own life and looked at the lives of the people here at Desert Breeze. But letting go is, is an attitude. It's not an attitude of fatalism or fear. It's not fatalism. Whatever will be, will be. That's not what they said when they let him go down the river or, or sent him back into the arms of Pharaoh's daughter to be raised in the palace. Whatever will be, will be. Fatalism. Can't control anything. That's not what, that wasn't what was going on in their heart. And hopefully it wasn't fear. Oh, no, what are we going to do? No, I think it was faith. God, he's in your hands because you, you know you care and you rule. And so we're going to trust you. We're going to trust you. This is hard. It's never been harder, but that's what we're going to do here with this particular situation. And so that's why the Bible tells us in Psalm 55, 22, cast your burdens upon the Lord and he will sustain you and he will not allow the righteous to be shaken. And so what do you need to let go of? What do you need to turn over to God? What do you need to put into that little ark, so to speak? That ark is a beautiful picture of what do you need to put into God's hands and and send it down the Nile River? That's scary. I know it is. So I went through a list here. What do you need to let go of? I was thinking of parenting, the first thing, you know, with kids. Your, Your kid goes into kindergarten. That's scary for parents, isn't it? You know, your kid goes off to kindergarten the first, maybe not for some of you moms, you're probably happy. Oh, good, I'm glad he's finally out of the house. But, uh, Maybe not. Maybe it was harder for some dads, but, uh, but I, sometimes I kind of, ah, go, ah. who's crying more, the little kid or the mom? And then if, even from that, I mean, letting your child go get their driver's license and then letting them go out and drive on their own, that's scary. 
Were you fasting and praying the whole time they were out there driving around? I was. They get their driver's license. How about going off to college? Uh Uh-oh, here's a test of how well we raised them. (gasps) I'm frightened. Yeah, how about getting married when the kids get married? How about when they have their own kids? They don't even know what they're doing. (laughs) They are clueless in raising kids. I'm going to send them a book in the mail anonymously (laughs) on parenting, no forward address. No forwarding address, just send them tons of books. Just I'll do it anonymously. They got to learn that parenting because they're not getting it. Of course, we didn't know it either when we raised them, so maybe that's why. <laughs> I mean, there's so many things that we have to kind of let go. We got to say, okay, God, we did the best we could. We did the best we could. How about this, how they turned out? How they turned out. And we talked about this back during our parenting series in, uh, in the fall of this last year that you and I are responsible for the process but not the product. God's responsible for for the product, but we want to be responsible for for the product. But what if our kids go south? Can you put them in that little ark and send them down the Nile and say, God, they're in your hands. I did the best I could. I tried to follow your ways. I didn't do a perfect job, but God, they're in your hands. That's part of that. Here's, Here's another part of this list. So that's parenting, but... But uh, turning it over to God, what do you need to do? How about a loved one who has passed away? You know, in my neighborhood, there's all these shrines. You guys know what a shrine is? Where people get killed out on the highway or freeway, and then they build a little shrine, and then it almost seems like weekly, there's people that are dropping stuff off and leaving stuff and all that. Hey, I understand grieving. I understand walking through that, but I'm thinking maybe at some point, by the way, that's against the law. I mean, it is. It's against, uh, there's a city ordinance. Sometimes they'll come and clean that stuff up over time. But, but the fact is, is that are you, is, are you struggling trying to let that thing go? Let him go? Let that person go that has passed on? Or how about this past hurts? Not letting bitter root grow up in your heart. You've been hit hard. And, and you can carry that the rest of your life and it creates baggage in your life and it, it creates problems in every area of your life. How about this one? How things used to be, the good old days. Letting that go. Or how about this one, ever getting married? Or ever, ever having children? Or ever having more children? Or ever being healed of your health problem? Did you know that Paul cried out three times in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? God, take this from me, this thorn in my flesh. God didn't take it from him. God said, my grace will be sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. I'm not saying be fatalistic or fearful. I'm just saying this is about faith. It's about turning it over to God and trusting that he knows, he cares, he rules. You can trust him. You can trust him. And the more you get to know him, the more you will trust him. Turning it over to him. How about turning it over the fact that you wanted to land that big job or that great career and it hasn't happened? Or how about this one, the big why question The big why question that can loom over us like a thick, dark cloud that won't go away. Why did this happen to me? Why did this happen? Or how about this one? The what ifs and the if onlys of our life. The what ifs and the if onlys. What if I had done this or if only I had done that? They can fill us with guilt, anger, and self-pity. What do you need to let go of? Number three, my passion for God is a work of his Holy Spirit. Because God knows, cares, and rules. My passion for God is the work of the Holy Spirit. We see that in the life of, uh, of Moses. Three times he intervenes. Egyptian beating up a Hebrew. That's the first time. Second time, two Hebrews fighting. He intervenes there. The third time he intervenes is protecting the seven daughters of the priest of Midian. 
Now, I believe that we want God in direct proportion to the fact that he really wants us. So, so it's preemptive love. I want God because he wants me. He wanted me first. And I believe that the work of God, God is working in Moses' life, creating this passion with him, in him, that sense of justice, and that's all a work of God. John 6, it makes that very clear. Also, John 15, 6. We didn't choose God. God chose us. He pursued us. It's that his preemptive love. And so this passion for God is a work of his spirit. L- listen to what it says in Hebrews eleven twenty four through 26 about Moses. See if this isn't the work of God in his heart. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Is that the work of God in his heart, in life? Yes, I mean, think of all that Moses had lost. He went from living in a royal household in urban Egypt to living as a foreigner in a rural Midianite tent. He went from the privilege of a prince in the greatest nation on the earth to the obscurity of a fugitive fugitive criminal out in the Sinai wilderness. I mean, if if you were writing Moses' biography at this point, you would say that he had made some poor life decisions. And yet the Bible would dispute with you about that. And even Moses would say, poor life decisions, following God over the wealth of Egypt? See, this is what you need to know. Whatever you give up in following God is nothing compared to intimacy with him and living for his glory. See, that's what Moses is getting glimpses of that. He's beginning to see the beauty and the glory of God, and he wants God more than he wants anything else. Now, it's a bit misguided, because you can have passion and be very gifted, but misguided and lack character, and that's what we see in Moses' life. Acts 7, 22 and 23, Moses was 40 years old, mighty in words and deed. That was part of Stephen's speech. So gifts are given, fruit is grown. Don't confuse charisma with character. The best example of that is the first king of Israel. Look at 1 Samuel, study through that. You begin to see that they selected Saul. Saul was handsome, he was attractive, he was good looking, he was popular. Oh my goodness, he lacked character. He had charisma but no character. He trashed the kingdom in in so many different ways until David was raised up, who was a man that had more character. And so, next point on your notes, my preparation for ministry and mission is his priority, is God's priority. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by the well. Someone has said Moses was 40 years in Egypt learning something, 40 years in the desert learning to be nothing, and 40 years in the wilderness proving God to be everything. And so because Moses takes matters into his own hands, God allows him to face the consequences of his actions and be driven into the wilderness. Now, once again, the wilderness is a place of loneliness, obscurity, failure, loss, pain, struggle. It's the dark night of the soul. It's in the wilderness that that people meet God. It's in the wilderness where God does his best work 
in our lives. I mean, do a study sometime just in that, that idea of wilderness uh, throughout the scripture. I mean, it, it's in the wilderness, Jacob sees the stairway to heaven. Genesis 28, somebody just woke up and said, hey, that's Led Zeppelin. <laughs> no, that's not Led Zeppelin. It's actually stairway from heaven would be more appropriate. Genesis 28, it's the wilderness of, of, it's in the wilderness, Elijah hears the still small voice of God, 1 Kings 19. It's in the wilderness that John the Baptist preaches repentance, Matthew 3. It's in the wilderness, Jesus wins the victory over the devil, Matthew 4. It's in the wilderness, Saul of Tarsus wrestles with the Old Testament scriptures and finds Christ there, Galatians 1. So here's what's interesting about this. Before we move on to the next point here, Moses is on the run as a future, Fugitive heads into the wilderness, and what is he going to eat? What is he going to do? Where is he going to sleep? And despite Moses trying to be God rather than trusting God, God incredibly is incredibly gracious and provides for Moses in the wilderness. He finds him a home, a wife, a son, and a family. Even in the wilderness, his covenant love comes after us and takes care of us. Even when we've made some messes with our lives, he comes after us. He loves us, and he still provides for us and takes care of us. Here's the next point. My plans have a limit. My plans have a limit because God knows, cares, and rules. My plans have a limit. You see that, verses 11, 14, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And so Acts, once again, Acts 7, 25, Stephen gives us insight into the heart of of Moses, he says, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand so he had a good heart. He was just misguided. Moses' plans didn't go as well as he had hoped. Now, my question was, uh, maybe you've had, maybe plans haven't worked out the way that you had hoped. Anybody here in that category? You've, you've made some plans, and man, what the heck? I, I give it a lot of work and effort, and sometimes, sometimes we, didn't, we didn't plan it well enough, but I think there's other reasons too. I think that many times those plans don't work out because listen, listen to me, God has something better for us, even if it doesn't look better. He's got a better plan if you trust that he knows, he cares, he rules. But I think there's also another issue here that we need to deal with. Sorry, we gotta deal with this. I think it's because sometimes we are trying to be God rather than trust God. We, we take matters into our own hands. This is the sin of taking matters into our own hands. This is about control issues. Did you know that we're, we are all control freaks? You're a control freak. You just don't know it. Now, now maybe you're not a control freak you know, with every aspect of your life, but there's an aspect of your life that you are a control freak. You're not trusting God in that. You're trying to be God rather than trust God with that. How would I know that? Well, well, well I know that by your anxiety and your anger. People with control issues wrestle with inordinate anxiety and anger. Your greatest nightmare is uncertainty. So it might not be in, in every aspect. You know, maybe you're, you're cool with your marriage, but it's with your job, and you're like freaking out. Whoa! You're anxious because they've talked layoffs, and then you get laid off, and then you're angry. They should have laid these other guys off before they laid me off. And so, oh, because too much of your sense of security is, is built on that. You're trying to control that rather than to give it over to God. Or maybe it is your marriage. Maybe it is your marriage, and, and it creates all sorts of anxiety and anger. It's just showing you how much control you're trying to exercise over, over that because your greatest nightmare is uncertainty. You're struggling with uncertainty. By the way, you need to know this. Spoiler alert, Moses' anger issues 
is going to trouble him for most of his life. In fact, Moses' anger issues, control issues, will keep him out of the promised land. He never gets a really a good handle on this. He struggles with this in his life. And so really, as we talk about control issues, you know this. What's the main difference between us and God? What's the main difference between us and God? He never thinks that he's us. That's the main difference. <laughs> that was rude, wasn't it? He never is confused and thinks that he's us, but we are confused and think that we're him. And so we try to control. Where are you trying to be God and where are you trusting God? Where in your life are you most prone to be God? What do you get most anxious about and most angry about? That'll tell you where you're trying to, trying to play God, why you're trying to be God. What do you get most anxious about and most angry about? Yeah, well, if she'd just get her act together, wait a minute, it's not, it doesn't have to do with, I mean, maybe she does need to get her act together, but, but your anger is not her fault or his fault or your job's fault or anybody's fault. It's your response. It's, it's how you're choosing to respond to those circumstances. You need to speak the truth in love. Certainly, you can draw healthy boundaries and all of that, but they're not making you feel angry or anxious. It's not your circumstances that make you feel that way. It's your response to your circumstances. You're trying to play God rather than, you're trying to be God rather than trust God. You've you got to learn to trust God. Proverbs 21, 31, the horse is made ready for battle, but victory is in the hands of the Lord. Do the very best I can, but leave the results in God's hands. Hard work, but rest in God. You need to work hard, but you, you, you leave the results in God's hands. You gotta rest in him, you gotta trust in him. My problems have a purpose. Next point, we're almost finished. My problems have a purpose. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So Moses is in the wilderness. God does his best work in the wilderness. God will always sacrifice your temporal comfort for your eternal good. He will always do that. Problems will teach you things about yourself and God that no pastor or professor can ever teach you. Romans 5, 1 through 5 says really that our problems, our wilderness times can give us a maturity and intimacy with God that nothing else can give to us. So by living in the wilderness, he learned to rely on God, that is Moses. By having a family, he learned to lead, guide, and discipline those he loved. By working with the Midianites, most likely as a shepherd, he developed skills to help him lead the Israelites out of their enslavement. I love what J.R. Miller, 1903, this dead theologian says about our problems and the circumstances of our life. He says this, when we get to heaven, we shall know that God has made no mistake in anything he has done for us. However, he may have broken into our plans and spoiled our pleasant dreams. Number seven, my prayer has an impact. My prayer has an impact. Verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. James 4.2 says, we have not because we what? Anybody? We ask not. We have not because we ask not. James 5.16 says, the prayers of a righteous people are powerful and effective. Listen to me. Prayer makes things happen that otherwise won't happen if we don't pray. 
Prayer makes things happen that won't happen if we don't pray. That's what the Bible's telling us. There's things that happen as a result of our prayer because God knows, cares, and because he rules. That's why you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you really can't do more than pray until you've prayed. So pray. He hears. He knows. He cares. Interact with him. And then number eight, my perspective must be shaped by God's word producing peace in perplexing times. My perspective must be shaped by God's word. The more my perspective about my circumstances are shaped by God's word, it will produce peace in perplexing times. The reason why I don't have peace in perplexing times is because my mind, my heart's not being shaped by God's word. And so, so verses 23 and 25 We are to live our lives based on what God has revealed, not what we feel. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant. God saw the people of Israel. God knew. Peace isn't found by trying to understand it all, but by trusting the one who does and is working all things for our good and his glory. Now, I'm gonna end with prayer, but let me just share with you a little bit of, I I did the funeral yesterday of this 23-year-old who, was the nephew of my sister-in-law. It was an accidental, self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. It's devastating. Absolutely devastating. And as I said last week, for this family to get through something that devastating, you need to have a high view of God. You need to know that God knows, cares, and rules even in devastating times. Now, I was told by the family, it was part of the funeral when I did the funeral yesterday, is that the family told me that about a month earlier that he had gone around and told everybody that he needed to get his, his life right with God. And then he also said as he was seeking God during that time, he told everybody he had had an encounter with God. And they said they couldn't doubt it because his life was so drastically changed. Now listen to me, I don't believe that that was an accident. I believe that the young man truly had an encounter with God because I believe that God knew what was coming down the road. And God pursued him and met him miraculously. I don't understand all the implications of it. I'm just going off of what they told me as I interact with them. They were blown away. And it brought a a, a certain level of comfort. So I believe that God in his perfect love, infinite wisdom, unlimited power pursued Trent and Trent had an encounter with God. We're going to talk about what it means to have an encounter with God next week in Exodus chapter 3. But that's what we all need more than anything if we're going to get through difficulties. You can see here the rest of the story here on your Exodus. Exodus presents many pictures of of our Savior, uh, Jesus, in Moses. You can see the contrast comparison between Moses and Jesus. But Jesus is the true and better Moses. It's not about working a plan. Getting through difficulties is not about working a plan, but getting to know a person. It's about getting to know a person, and it's Jesus. Let's pray. So, Father, thank you. As we prepare our hearts now for communion this morning, we thank you that you know you care, you rule the circumstances of our lives for our good and your glory, and because of that, we know that our history, our our place in history is no accident. Our protection and provision by you is no coincidence. Our passion for you is a work of your Holy Spirit. Our preparation for ministry and mission is your highest priority in our lives. Our plans have a limit. Our problems have a purpose. Our prayer has an impact. So help us to have a biblical perspective in perplexing times 
so that we will be filled with your peace that goes beyond all understanding. We pray these things in your son's beautiful and glorious name, and amen, amen. Three stations.